His friends were, were thrown into the lion's den. Closed up the lion's mouth. Impossible. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, we believe in the God who stood there with them and they were not harmed, and, and that is impossible. And this morning, as we continue towards Christmas, I want to look at the impossibility of God. And we're going to do that by looking at the story of Isaac, not just the story in 22, but, but, but really the, the story from verse, uh, chapter 17 of Genesis. An impossible story about an impossible child, which hints at the even greater impossibility of Jesus' coming and Jesus' life. A bit of backstory for you. Uh, those of you who remember, uh, Abraham uh, was in Ur of the Chaldeans, I believe, and God came to him and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave everything that you know and, and that you trust and your comfort zone, and I want you to go out to the land where I'm going to show you. And Abraham, the man of faith, uh, got up, and straight away he took his family with him and he left and he followed God. He trusted God. And by the time we come to about chapter 17 of Genesis, Abraham has been following God for quite some time. He's in the land. And God comes to him, to this man whom God calls friend, and he says in, in Genesis 17, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I am going to bless you so that you don't know where you're coming or going. I'm going to give you so many descendants. Do you know what, Abraham? I'm going to give you a son. You and Sarah are going to have a child. Which is all well and good, except... Um, by this stage, chapter 17 of Genesis, um, Abraham is about 99 years old. His wife, Sarah, is not very far behind. She's about 90. Besides which, uh, Sarah is barren. And already by this stage, so worried has Abraham been about who is going to pass on his inheritance to, who is going to be his heir, that, that, that he's already slept with his wife's servant, Hagar, so that they could have a son, as, if, as it were, by proxy, the son Ishmael. And yet chapter 17 of Genesis, about halfway through, God comes to Abram and says, Abram, you are going to have a son, your own son, with your wife Sarah. And it's going to be through that son whom the lineage of my blessing is going to come. Have a listen to what what Abraham does. Chapter 17, verse 17. Abraham, well, let's read just before that. Um, regarding Sarah, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarah. From, that, from now on, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly. She will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. And Abraham bowed down to the ground. And he laughed. <laughs> To himself in disbelief. How can I become a father at the age of a hundred? And how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? 
And so Abraham said to God, May Ishmael live under your blessing. God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and give you a son with your wife Sarah. And, and, and Abraham doesn't fall down in thanks and appreciation and say, Wow, God, that's amazing. I'm so happy. What Abraham does is he puts on a bit of a show for God, but, but inside he is laughing himself silly because Abraham knows the facts of life. He knows that he's not going to have a kid. And even if he could have a kid, forget about Sarah, 90 years old, first child, not going to happen. Fast forward to the next chapter, chapter 18, verse 9. Uh, chapter 18, God appears to, to Abraham. Um, uh, he's on the way to destroy the, the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. But chapter 18, verse 19, they're sitting down. They've just had a meal. Uh, Abraham saw these three blokes coming. He said to Sarah, quickly go and make the, the, the best bread you can make, and we're going to kill the fattened animal, and we're going to really have a gourmet feast. And they're busy eating, and Sarah's just sort of inside the flap of the tent, just out of sight, but, but she's there listening. What's, what's going on? Who are these people out the front? I, I want to know what's happening. It's not every day Abraham rushes in and makes me cook the score my feast. And at the end of the meal, one of these visitors who, who we're told is the Lord says to Abraham, knowing full well I'm sure that Sarah's just there, says, Abraham, where's your wife Sarah? Notice the, the new name that God had just given her the previous chapter. Where's your wife, Sarah? And Abram says, well, she's just over there. And the Lord says, he, he basically repeats what he said in chapter 17. He says, a year from now, Sarah's going to have a kid. And you know, Sarah and Abraham are a perfect couple. They just act and think alike. God said to Abram, you're going to have a son. Abram laughed himself silly. God says to Sarah, Sarah, you're going to have a son. What does she do behind the flap of the tent? <laughs> Quietly to herself. <laughs> and she says, sure, it would be a nice thought. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a family? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a child of my own? Remember back in those days, if you didn't have a, a child, you didn't have a future. Your children were literally your future. But as nice a thought as it was for Sarah, says Genesis chapter 18, it, she laughed because it was an impossible pipe dream for her. I mean, she knew her body. She knew she was way past the age of having kids. I mean, maybe a few years earlier, if God had come and said, you're going to have a child, maybe then she'd believe, because then it would just be a case of, of God lifting her barrenness, and that happens in the Scriptures. But let, let's be realistic. A barren woman at the age of 90, with a 99-year-old husband having a child, would you not have laughed as well? I mean, Sarah had so long ago set her face to the facts of life that she wouldn't have a child. She was the one who said to Abraham, uh, take my, my maidservant Hagar and have a child by proxy with, with her. You know, both Abraham and his wife Sarah, they, they get this promise from God that he's going to bless them 
extraordinarily. But what God promises them is just so far beyond their understanding of the way the world works that that they just can't accept it. They laugh at God's promise of blessing. They they don't find it comforting that God says, I'm going to bless you. They, They find it ridiculous. They find it stupid. And of course, they know something about who they're dealing with. They they know that, that, that God is a God of power and might, but, but they don't get the fact that God is the God who does the impossible. Now, God, God has to fit into their view of how the world works. God has to fit into their structure of how the world works. And so Abraham, he gives a very subtle hint to God and says, hey God, you actually, you got it wrong. You meant to say the child that I've already got because Sarah's not going to have a child, is she? And God turns to him and says, no, I said what I meant, Abraham. You and Sarah are going to have a kid. Sarah laughs at God and, and, and God says, why did you laugh, Sarah? And Sarah says, I didn't laugh. I try. She tries to bluff her way out of, out of this encounter with God. And God just, just I, I can imagine the look on his face. He, no, Sarah, you did laugh. Have you ever found yourself laughing at God like that? Maybe, maybe laughing is not the right word. Have, have you ever found yourself thinking that what God is saying or what God is doing or what God is offering is just impossible? That, that, that it just, it, it, it's not the way the world works? Have you ever caught yourself thinking, God, I think your message has got garbled in translation a bit here. Let me put you right. Let's let's jump forward a few thousand years to just before the very first Christmas. Let's say 12 months before. I love the story of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth, another old couple, another barren woman and and Zechariah says Luke I think in he's he's serving in the temple, he's offering incense before God and and while he's in there an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Zechariah, I've got great news for you. You and Elizabeth are gonna have a child and he's gonna be uh, the, the, the forerunner to the Messiah. He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. He's he's gonna get the way ready for the coming of the Christ. And like Abraham and like Sarah, Zechariah looks at this angel with this message, this impossible message that he is going to have a child. And he turns to the angel, Luke 1.18, and he says, pull the other one, mate. I'm old. Wife's not much better. I think you got the wrong bloke. Zechariah refused to believe what the angel said because what the angel said was impossible. What about, what about the general population around about the time of Christmas? Think Jerusalem around about the year minus 1 AD. 
Well, what did they think about all of those promises which you've been hearing last week and this week through the service of of God saying that He's going to send a Messiah to, to deliver His people? Did they think it was a nice idea, but, you know, just a little bit over exaggerated? I mean, those, those promises that God said is going is to come uh, and, and a virgin is going to give birth, oh, come on, what's up with that? It doesn't happen like that. <laughs> that a Savior would come from Bethlehem. Ah. You know, I think on the surface level, there was probably this... this this piety, this we are God's people, we're going to do the right thing, we believe in God's promises, but, but underneath there is a laughter and there is just this festering unbelief. God, you haven't got it quite right. The world doesn't work like that. Virgins don't give birth. And all those passages which speak of, of the Messiah being a, a suffering servant and a humble man and, and a bruised reed he will not crush and, and all of those things. God, it just doesn't work like that. The world is a world of force and we need a Messiah who's going to save us from the Romans and, and make us strong and powerful. Yeah, we want your promises, God, but, but I think you've got it slightly wrong because that's not how the world functions. What about Joseph? To his credit, he changes his mind when God speaks to him, but, but he has Mary, his fiancée, coming to him saying, uh, uh, Joseph, I've seen an angel, uh, and, and you notice the bump. Well, it's, it's, it's of the Holy Spirit. And what does Joseph say? He says, that's an impossible story. And he decides he's going to divorce her quietly. You know, I, I think there's a common thread running through all of this here. When when God acts, when the good news comes, it comes and asks us to believe the impossible. A child at 90, how? God incarnate, the God who stretched the fabric of the universe into place, who holds it and sustains it and, and, and is it all in all, that God born in a manger, a a, a fetus in somebody's womb. How on earth is this possible? And yet God comes and says, when I promise the impossible and my impossible interacts with your reality, your reality is the thing that must change. My promise won't change. Reality will change for you. Because nothing is impossible for me. And we turn over a few pages in Genesis, go to chapter 21, and we read of of Isaac being born to Abraham and Sarah. And we read there, if if you get a chance, just the first few verses of of chapter 21, and, and we read how Isaac is named Isaac. Laughter is his name. And we read of, of Sarah, his mother, laughing, not this time as, uh, as in disgust or disbelief at God, but laughing for joy and excitement and happiness that reality has shifted and she who was barren and 99 years old, her husband and 90 herself, she has a child and, and isn't this wonderful news? And 
And again, I think that's, that, that's a hint of how God works. When God works and says, I will do the impossible, can there be any other response except joyful praise and celebration and just exuberant happiness at how the world has changed? You know, I love that incident at the beginning of, of the Gospels where, where, where um, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin. And as they're coming close, John the Baptist inside Elizabeth kicks and, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she, she's just filled with joy. And, and Mary comes and, and we've got this beautiful Mary's Magnificent and, and she sings this song of praise and celebration and happiness. Because the impossible was happening. And how can you not celebrate that? Or what about a few months later on the hillside around Jerusalem, the, the good news comes to, to shepherds on the hillside and, and, and the Savior is born. And what do we read? We read of choirs of angels bursting into songs of joy and celebration. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth towards men. Forever reality has shifted on this night and we must celebrate. And those same shepherds who go to Bethlehem and they see the Savior, the King born there, and they celebrate and worship Him, and they go throughout the town, and they share the news of what they have seen and what they have heard, because reality has changed, and they have to share that good news. When God promises the impossible, the world forever changes. On the birth of Isaac, like, it's kind of like the story of Christmas. Much less so, of course. But, but I think at least one of the messages that we learn ourselves from Christmas, from the coming of Christ, is just how impossible it is that God should become a man and walk amongst us. And I think part of what we need to learn and relearn at Christmas is to accept that God does the impossible. But what about the reading that Reg did for us, Genesis chapter 22? Abraham going and sacrificing Isaac. And we read there that God decides that he wants to test Abraham. He wants to see if he really fears God. And he tells him to take his precious son, his only son, this, this child of the promise who has changed reality for Abraham and Sarah, and to take him and to sacrifice him. To sacrifice him through whom via his lineage would come the promised Savior who would bring blessing to you and I. You see the problem there? God's promise that He would bless the whole world demanded that Isaac live. And yet Genesis chapter 22, God's 
command is that Isaac die. That's impossible. Isn't it? But you know, Abraham had, I think he'd begun to learn the lesson that God does the impossible for morning breakfast. And he took his son to the region of Moriah, left his servants behind. He, he took Abraham there to the mountain that God told him. And on the way, we've got this oh, terrible incident where, where Isaac looks up at his dad. He's got the wood for the sacrifice on his back. His dad's got the fire. His dad's got the, the knife. Dad's got everything else. And he looks up at his dad and he says, Dad, I've got the wood. You've got the fire. Haven't we forgotten something? Where's the lamb? And Abraham's answer, well, son, God's going to provide. Well, what did Abraham mean by that? Writer to the Hebrews, about chapter 11 of Hebrews says that, that Abraham reckons that if necessary, God would bring his son Isaac back from the dead. I think all that, that Abraham knew was, was that God had promised to bless him and to bless Isaac and through Isaac to bring blessing to the whole world and that already he knew that Isaac was living proof that God can do the impossible. So if God says, I'm going to get you to do something impossible, Abraham says, well, fine. I'm going to do it because you can do the impossible, God. <laughs> he wasn't going to make the same mistake of laughing at God's command again. We know the story is about to strike the killing blow. Uh, angel of the Lord says, whoa, Abraham, stop and, and look over there. And, and miraculously, there's a lamb and, and Isaac is impossibly spared. But what about Jesus? He too was led to the region of Moriah. New Testament calls that part of the world Calvary. Same place. He too carried the wood for his sacrifice on his back. He too walked with his father and in the garden beforehand says, Father, is, is, is there a way for this sacrifice to be taken away? But unlike Isaac, the impossibility is not that he is spared. The impossibility of God is that he dies. I mean, we've, we're, we're celebrating the impossibility that God incarnate would walk amongst us, the man who's, who's the God who stretched the heavens into place. That's a huge impossibility. But, but can I ask you what is even more impossible? Is it not that this God who is life itself should die? That the author of life should be cut off from the living is impossible. And yet it happened.
at Christmas, the impossible thought of God among us, Emmanuel, became reality. At the cross, the impossible thought of, of God dying became reality. And it seems like there's an impossible dilemma here because the promise of God is, is light and life and life and just everything that we need in Christ. Without Jesus, there is no hope for us. And God says, I have promised you everything in Jesus. Uh, Corinthians says, Paul, all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus and Jesus dies. How do those two fit together? It doesn't work. Christmas says, God with you. Easter says, God gone to death. Well, what do we learn from the Christmas story? When the impossibility of God hits the real world of our reality, what changes? Not, not the promises of God, but reality itself. I mean, Abraham had a glimpse of what God would do, didn't he? He, he said to Isaac, God will provide. And doesn't God provide for Jesus, his own son? The impossible happens and he dies. And then the impossible happens and he raises his son, Jesus Christ, to life again. And death itself becomes defeated. And the whole of reality from that point on is different. Because from that very point on, there is no more stranglehold of death over the world. Well, my friends, our God is the God who does what the world says cannot happen. That is the news of Christmas. That is the news of the cross. And if there's one thing I want us to take away this morning, it's it's the thought or the question. Can I trust this God who does the impossible? Can I trust this God who does the impossible? When he says, go and do something which is out of your comfort zone. And you say, I can't do it, God. And God says, I'm with you. Impossible things happen. Let's believe six impossible things before breakfast. Because you know what? We know the God who does what is impossible. I think it's James who says the God who can do, might not be James, the God who does so much more than we can even begin to imagine. Beyond our mind, beyond our ken. I think it was Spurgeon who said that, 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 that for us to understand what is possible for God is like getting a, a mosquito, a gnat, to go and drink up the ocean. This Christmas, may reality for you be changed 
May God do the impossible in your life. And may you trust Him. Amen.